Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Friday, October 9th, 2020. Thanksgiving's right around the corner, so we talk with our barbecue whisperer, Meathead Goldwyn. He'll tell you how you gotta go about barbecuing, especially a bird. A number of nooses have been found lying around construction sites in Toronto recently, and it's got some folks feeling uneasy. We find out from a historian how a common piece of knotted rope became one of the most potent symbols for hate. And we're joined by an infectious disease specialist. Last week, he co-signed a letter urging the provincial government to exercise restraint in returning to stage two. We see how he feels after today's announcement by the province. All of this starts right now. Thanksgiving holiday weekend here in Canada. What could be bigger than talking about the bird and getting together, albeit in a responsible way. And so we're going to do that as a first order of business. And joining us yet again, we've anticipated this for the while. Meathead Goldwyn is with us. You know him as the author of Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling. It's considered one of the best 100 cookbooks of all time. He's also the purveyor of AmazingRibs.com. Meathead, how you been keeping? I'm great, John. How's, how are you? I'm <laughs> all right. We're hanging. We're hanging oh, in. We got Thanksgiving. Goodness. May Listen, we live in interesting times, they say. <laughs> I don't know how interesting the living is. I mean, I'm in the bunker and I'm uh, down here in the root cellar for the last seven months. I may never leave it again if oh, things are going. I'm a hermit. You know, I, I got behind the wheel of the car today to go to the post office. I think it was the first time in two months. Wow. Well, you know, uh, you're spending more time behind the grill than you are actually behind the wheel then. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you how much time I spend behind the grill. Google Earth drove by my house, and if you look at my house, there I am standing by the grill on Google Earth. No. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Listen, you know, we've got our Thanksgiving here. Yours is at the end of November. Uh, heaven forbid, you know, we should still be in this lockdown mode. But I got to no, ask, because, you know, the last time we spoke, you said in anticipation of Thanksgiving, you'd start uh, telling us about how, how to best cook a bird. And so I need to ask the rudimentary stuff here because I'm really uh, not an expert at it. Meathead, when you go about it, and because I checked your website, I mean, you got it all figured out, including how oh, to gosh. cut the meat and blah, blah, blah. But you go with a, a fresh or a frozen bird to start. You know, I almost always go with a frozen bird. Um, when you get a fresh bird, now, I don't know what the laws are up by you, but down by us in the States, they're allowed to call a bird that has been chilled below the freezing point fresh. Now, I don't know why. But uh, I'd rather have a bird that's killed, frozen, and then it is frozen fresh than a bird that's kept fresh and then shipped to my store and it sits on my shelf for, on the store shelf for a week or two and it starts to get a little funky. So I buy a frozen bird almost every year. Mm, okay. Well, that's an important tip. See, that's the tick in the box that I need to know these things. The other one is, of course, uh, the Lollapalooza question when it comes to doing a turkey. How do you keep this thing from not overcooking so that it's tough? You know, you call it cardboard. Uh, there's a real fine line to doing that. 
Yeah. Oh, there, that's an easy one. There is nothing that will improve your cooking overnight better than a $30 digital thermometer. Um, you put a thermometer in the breast meat, and don't trust that pop-up. That pop-up is set for way beyond cardboard. Um, you need a good digital thermometer, um, $30 U.S. dollars. I don't know what the exchange rates are now, but it's not expensive. I've seen some for as little as 15 or 16 And it'll tell you within five seconds precisely the temperature. And you want to shoot for 71 degrees centigrade or 70 degrees in that range, 160 Fahrenheit, um, for it to be safe. And uh, you, with a digital thermometer, you'll never undercook it. Nobody will ever get sick. You'll never overcook it, and nobody will be have suffer from dry mouth. All right, and so when you bring the bird out of the oven, you tent it? No. No. Uh, okay, yeah, that's a great question. When you tent it, what happens is you trap moisture under the aluminum foil. And now you've got crispy skin when it comes out of the oven, and all of a sudden it turns to rubber. So don't bother tenting it. There's so much heat built up in it, it's fine. And it doesn't have to rest. There's, there is no real scientific evidence to prove that resting meat um, enhances it in any way. There is a slightly larger loss of moisture if you cut into it right away than if you let it sit five minutes. But that moisture isn't lost. You capture it, and that's, it goes right in on top of it as your juices or your gravy. Again, with Meathead Goldwyn, this guy is the barbecue whisperer. Uh, his book is Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling, considered one of the 100 best cookbooks of all time, according to the New York Times on his bestseller list. And you can see him at AmazingRibs.com. The other thing that really I kind of got curious about is uh, you're talking about uh, carving the bird. You say it's easier if you break it down into parts or butterfly it even before you cook it. But you know, you yeah. want to present something. I mean, you got to present the whole bird, don't you? What are you, are you reassembling? Yeah, <laughs> you know, that whole Norman Rockwell bird is just ceremonious and beautiful. But there's some physics involved that tell you don't do that. And here's what happens. Um, the heat inside your oven or inside your grill, and by the way, it's a great way to cook it on, on your grill. I don't care what the temperature is. Uh, you got to leave room for the pie indoors. So you take it out on the grill, you get that smoky flavor and that nice, rich color. Um, but if you, if you cook the whole bird, the hot air in your oven cooks the outside of the meat. It can't penetrate the meat. What happens is as the outside of the meat warms up, it continues to heat the meat as it moves down towards the center. So the hot air cooks the outside of the meat, the outside of the meat cooks the inside of the meat, and it moves slowly because the meat is mostly water. It's about 75% water. So if you cook the bird whole or stuff it, that's worse. It takes a long time for the heat to get down to the center of that stuffing and make it safe. By the time the heat has penetrated that far, the outside of the meat is way overcooked. So the very best way to treat a turkey is to what they call spatchcock it or butterfly it, or I know it's not ceremonious, break it up like you would a chicken, cut the legs off the breast, because they cook at different rates. And everybody knows this. The dark meat can take more heat. You can cook it longer. If you cook it individual parts, it ain't as beautiful, 
but it's better tasting. And if you don't want to do that, what you do is you spatchcock it. And to spatchcock it or butterfly it, you cut the backbone out. You lay it down and you get really sturdy scissors and you cut the backbone out and you open it up so it looks like it's butterfly. And what happens now is you can brown both the skin side and the inside because if you leave it whole, even if you don't stuff it, the cavity stays pale and brown is beautiful. Brown is flavor. It's a chemical reaction called the Maillard reaction. If you open it up and lay it down, you brown both sides, you get more flavor and it cooks faster and it's more juicy and it just tastes better. And then what you can do is if you want to make that fancy presentation after it's cooked, you can kind of fake it. You can kind of push it back together where the backbone was <laughs> and make it look like a whole turkey. Um, but it's, you know, it's going to taste better than if you cook it whole. And please, stuffing it is just a recipe for cardboard. Oh, really? Wow, I didn't realize that. Okay, so stuffing it. You don't, you don't tend to stuff your bird? Never, never. That, like I said, the hot air cooks the outside, the outside cooks the inside, and it takes far longer for the heat to get to the center of the stuff. It's like cooking a bowling ball. <laughs> it, it, I mean, think of it. It's like this big bowling ball. It's just one thermal mass. And you, if, you, if, if you cook it all the way till the center is safe, the, the outside layers are going to be way overcooked. So opening it up, or at least not stuffing it so warm air can get into the cavity. It'll cook faster, and it'll be more moist. Again, Meathead Goldwyn, he's the real deal, the barbecue whisperer, and you can check him out on AmazingRibs.com. You know, as a matter of fact, I was watching the show on Netflix the other night, a series of them on the Great American uh, Barbecue Cook-Off, and uh, these people were being presented with challenges, and I was thinking about you immediately. I was thinking, uh, Meathead, how would you have handled... Like, one guy had to grill uh, an alligator's tail. The other woman uh, was... I guess she opened up the pantry and they put her uh, in front of the raccoon, so she had to do raccoon. Another guy made a squirrel stew. <laughs> I, <laughs> I saw this. I saw this. Uh, you know, it's entertainment. Um, you know, uh, the, the, it's fun. They do this sort of thing uh, with some regularity. Uh, that, that kind of competition's been going on. Goodness gracious. I don't know how I would do in one of these things. I I have to really think through a recipe. I can't think that fast. I'd probably get my butt whipped. Well, what what is the most exotic meat that you've actually uh, barbecued or grilled? Oh, I've cooked alligator and I've cooked squirrel. Uh, um, uh, I've cooked uh, all manner of seafood, uh, and and I've usually come out on the positive side of it, <laughs> knowing what I'm doing going in. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, uh, just looking at your background, too, I mean, you've obviously got a science background, food sciences and uh, into viticulture and uh, spirits and so on and so Like, for Thanksgiving with the bird, I mean, what would you recommend by way of a wine? Or if some of us just want spirits alone, could you drink a scotch with a turkey? <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> why uh, but, not? You know, scotch is pretty potent stuff, and it does... You know, it, it, it can kind of numb the taste buds. Hey, I've been up to the uh, uh, Toronto. I've got family up in the Toronto area. Um, maybe they're even listening, you know. Uh, and uh, I've uh, I've gotten a fondness for Canadian wines, especially from the peninsula. Um, great Canadian Riesling is just a perfect match 
for uh, turkey. It's just a wee bit sweet. It's got a good tartness. Um, it balances with all the side dishes if you're into the sweet potatoes and the cranberry sauce. And the stuffing, hey, I didn't want to denigrate stuffing. I just don't want to cook it in the bird. I Sometimes I like the stuffing better than the bird. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know what looked irresistible? I was watching on your website. You had the turkey burger with the stuffing on top between the brioche bun. Well, yeah, that's good, too. Yeah, yeah, and then you can doctor it with a little bit of uh, cranberry sauce. Mm-hmm. Well, and, yeah, and I mean, the, well, the, you know, that's half the battle, too, is having the leftover turkey. You know, turkey sandwiches. I've got a really good recipe on AmazingRibs.com for turkey pot pie. It's just like chicken pot pie, only it's with turkey. Um, and uh, uh, But it's, I've got a good um, a, a recipe for the crust, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, and, and the leftover sandwiches... Uh, Okay, here you go, John. Do you make your turkey sandwiches with mayonnaise or Miracle Whip? Mayo. Okay, okay, just checking. Not no. passing judgment. What, am I a heretic now? What know, happened the there? divided in two halves. <laughs> it's like vanilla okay. and chocolate, ah. crunchy and smooth, ah. Miracle Whip or mayo. I see, all right. Okay, well, listen, listen. <laughs> we're going to let you run, but uh, Meathead, this is too good. we got to continue, because I got the Kamado Joe out back, and... Uh, ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to do. I want to do a brisket. I want to do uh, a pork belly as well, and maybe some sausage. But uh, I'm really, I'm out of time. But we got to talk about it next time because I know uh, these are right in your wheelhouse there. And uh, I'll talk you, you through it. You, you will. I'm going to need some help. Obviously, you ought to be. You know what? You ought to be in the Hall of Flame. That's where they ought to induct you into the. <laughs> hey, um, go look at the recipe on AmazingRibs.com because one of the secrets is is how you make the gravy in a pan under the bird. Oh, sounds good. All right. Well, you've whetted everybody's appetite here for Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's our Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, my brothers and sisters and family in Canada. You know, if things keep up down here, I may be moving there soon. <laughs> All right. You, you won't be alone. There will be the exodus. Meathead, always good to talk. As a promise, we're, uh, we're going to follow up here and talk pork belly brisket next time. All right? It's a pleasure. Always fun talking to you. You got a Meathead Goldwyn, again, uh, the science of great barbecuing and grilling. That's Meathead, the science of great barbecuing and grilling. He is the barbecue whisperer. Here in the city of Toronto, we've had incidents. Four different construction sites in Toronto where five nooses were recently discovered in the summer, you might recall, including two at the uh, renovation site of the Michael Guerin Hospital in East York. And it's led people to speculate that maybe there's uh, systemic or racism rampant in the construction industry. When it comes to the idea of the noose being symbolic of that, I guess it makes sense, uh, given the connection to lynchings and all. But let's find out about the history of the noose in particular. Uh, Jack Schuler is a professor of American literature and black studies at Denison University in Ohio, as well as the author of The Thirteenth Turn, A History of the Noose. Mr. Schuler, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. It's a very interesting study now, uh, and you've authored this book, The Thirteenth Turn. Thirteenth Turn, again, is in reference to the rings on many, uh, the... Yeah, how many turns um, a hangman's knot could have. Um, a generally, a hangman's knot would have between six and thirteen turns. And, um, and the reason I called it The Thirteenth Turn was because I was curious as to why someone would create something that had that many turns in it like why would you construct um an object like that um and so when i think about the noose i think that you know it's it's something that someone has to actually make you have to craft it you have to know how to make a noose 
Um, and so there's there's a deliberateness to it. Which is interesting because obviously it suggests premeditation. Right. You know, there was that celebrated story earlier this summer from NASCAR and Bubba Wallace's garage where a noose was discovered. There was an investigation, but it, it somewhat dismissed the idea, said it was just kind of a, a pull-down. So uh, I'm guessing it wasn't as elaborate as having 13 turns. Do you know any more about that? I, I don't. I don't actually know how many turns were in that particular noose. Um, but, you know, that can happen, too. Sometimes people create knots that look like nooses, and people think that maybe it's a noose. Um, if it had 13 turns in it, then I would speculate that it, you know, was, it was created uh, for a specific purpose. Was it just a natural outcropping of the spate of lynchings uh, during Jim Crow and post-Civil War during Reconstruction that uh, this noose became an abhorrent racist symbol? So, I mean, the noose has been around for a while. I would say, you know, people were being hanged, um, you know, had been hanged for thousands of years. But the noose itself um, really sort of popped up in the 17th and 18th century. And then the hangman's knot, um, with the, the wrapping turns and the, the pull-through, um, that really doesn't appear until the 19th century in a big way. What happens in the late 19th century and the early 20th century is that people start um, lynching uh, black Americans, um, you know, especially in the South. Um, I'm actually sitting right now 10 miles away from a man where a man named Dick Walford was lynched, um, and he was lynched about five miles away from where Nina Simone was born. And, you know, that it wasn't just the fact that people were being hanged. It was that they were being hanged and that they were being photographed. And those photographs, you know, they spread across the country. There were postcards for a long time that people would purchase. Um, and, you know, when you see that and you see a black person hanging from that, the, the message is pretty clear. It tele telegraphs a specific message uh, to, to the public. Yeah, it's the bitter fruit, and uh, as we know the song. Now, the yeah. idea, I guess, was to strike terror, and that's where the inherent symbolism of the noose now has its application. So, And by the way, uh, as you studied this, the spate of the lynchings, uh, we usually ascribe that these kinds of things were rampant in the Deep South, but it wasn't always that way, was it? No, not at all. I mean, we, you know, the, the number is probably around 4,500 to over 5,000 lynchings between, like, 18... 1880 to about 1950, um, and they happened all over the United States. They happened all over the United States, but the majority were in the South, um, and uh, you know they weren't just they weren't just hangings either. I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand is that lynchings also often involved mutilations, burnings. Um, you know, people would be hanged and then they'd be shot. Um, most recently in 1981, a man named Michael Donald was, um, he was murdered in, uh, outside of Mobile, Alabama, but then the men brought him back into Mobile, Alabama, and they hanged him with a noose around his neck um, from a, a street sign. Um, I'm kind of curious because, I mean, uh, and we saw that, I mean, applied with the Jussie Smollett case in Chicago. Uh, now, whatever one might think about how that narrative played out, uh, the noose was central to the story there. And uh, just in general terms, I guess it's such a potent symbol so that, you know, graffiti alone or anything else won't suffice. Uh, it's still being used, I guess, on uh, occasion here in modern days. Uh, we're seeing the noose. Obviously, I was citing the hospital uh, renovation project and four different sites on Toronto construction sites. 
So it continues now uh, to be that abhorrent symbol that I talked about. It's a fascinating case study that you would write about that. I appreciate you joining us. I wish we had more time, but the book is The Thirteenth Turn, A History of the Noose. Jack Schuler is a prof of American Literature and Black Studies at Denison University in Ohio. Professor, really appreciate your weighing in this afternoon. Sure, thank you for your time. We've gone into stage two. Light, I guess is what they're calling it, and uh, it means no in-restaurant dining, no bars being frequented, 28 days, and uh, things like recreational hockey and so on and so forth also being closed down in the city of Toronto. Against that backdrop, uh, it was last week and a half, I guess, on the uh, 27th of September, where 20 prominent physicians uh, wrote a letter directly to the Premier imploring him not to lock down. That would be counterproductive. And uh, to that end, one of the signatories to the letter, Dr. Neil Rao, infectious diseases physician and medical microbiologist, as well as assistant prof in the Department of Medicine at the U of T, has joined us here on The Oakley Show. Dr. Rao, good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Do you want me to cry on air? <laughs> well, uh, you, you, t- you tell me if it's necessary. Would that be a natural response to what we heard just about an hour and change ago from the Premier? Uh, what is your reaction to this stage two light semi-lockdown? Well, obviously, it's not what we wanted, and so I'm joking a bit. But I, you know, what I will say is I give the Premier credit for actually sort of listening to us for a while and waiting, but the political pressure kept mounting. And what's sad is that we're basing it on data that hasn't been collected properly. We have a fiasco with testing. We have a data dump situation going on where the more we test, the more we find. And because there's a backlog, they go working overtime testing more than ever before. And, of course, they find more positives, and each daily case count goes up because they found more positives. But what we're not talking about is when the tests were collected. We're testing so many more, and we're getting them positive today. We're calling them positives from today. So we've almost created a false impression of a catastrophe or an impending catastrophe when, in fact, there's an increase from the summer, but it is not as bad as it looks. And... If we had been able to watch longer, I would have been happier because it's so hard to go backwards when you restrict. We said it's 28 days. Let's place a friendly bet or even have a betting pool online that it's going to be 28 days times three or four before we get out of this for Toronto. Well, it seems like we are just treading water because uh, as soon as the numbers go to the upside, uh, however those numbers are arrived at, as you just mentioned, then we go back into this response mode, uh, which you claim is an overreaction. Would that be about right? It, it's a it's a not a scientific reaction, but it's based on bad data. It'd be one thing if the reaction was to a real impending disaster at the hospital level. So in other words, there's a surge, and we're, we're almost turning into Bergamo, Italy, where we're turning people away. The hospital system is stressed right now. It's not because of COVID. It's because we're giving surgical care to a whole bunch of people who are delayed during the first wave. So it's a backlog of that. And also it's the typical seasonal increase we see in October and November and that we sometimes see due to flu season. So COVID as a percentage of the pressure on the healthcare system right now is small. When we have bad flu seasons, we don't turn around and tell every restaurant to close. We try to adapt. We start using rooms that we used for people who are recovering from scopes, endoscopies. We turn them into sort of sham bedrooms. We try to be creative. People spend more time in hallways. Yes, that's true. Some people spend more time in the emergency room. We've even got a ghost ward at the hospital where I work, which can be opened up, sort of a a basic ward, which is is air transit of hospital care. Okay, but it works. And it's, it's heated and it's air conditioned, but it's not the same as being in, you know, business class hospital care. 
there are creative ways we could have created capacity instead of making society suffer, because society does suffer. Now, at least this is a stage two plus. It's not as bad as before, but there's a lot of activities that are cut back, uh, and that's, it, it affects people's way of life. I mean, and, and then there are people who are hurt, too. People in the service industry are hurt, and what are they going to pivot back to? What are their options? They're not a Dr. Neil, me, on Zoom, seeing my patients anyway. They're not a lawyer who can see his or her clients on Zoom. The people at the lowest rungs are most affected by this. They don't have another option. Service industries are a big way of employing those people. The hospitality industry, the hotel industry, the entire hotel and hospitality industry has been decimated by lack of travel to begin with. And then you look at all the sacrifices society is making already. We're already doing physical distancing. We're already wearing masks. We're already controlling the number of people in businesses, which affects how businesses run. And then we whack them with this. So I just wish we had collected data in a better way, in a more methodical way, in real time, and made the decisions based on previously accepted trigger points, like what they're doing in Alberta. And Alberta has increasing cases, and they're not doing this. Which leads to the obvious question, then. Uh, this is somewhat unsettling, Dr. Rao. Uh, is the health table, the command table, then getting it wrong? And if so, why? I mean, there are a lot of people on that table, as we understand it, with long letters behind their names. Uh, what's going on? So there are a lot of smart people there, but I think the way the decisions are made is still somewhat opaque. Um, there are always politics that enter outbreaks, but some places in the world are better than others. In Sweden, which I, I sometimes get beeped for mentioning Sweden because it's the S word of this, this outbreak. <laughs> in Sweden, they kept a very clean division between public health and politics. And their public health class was roundly criticized by media outlets from abroad, but roundly accepted by people within Sweden. And they faced a tirade of criticism, but they stood their course, and I admire them for it. And even Quebec did do it to some degree at the beginning during the first wave. They were the most liberal. But unfortunately, what has happened is now we're in a situation where we're kind of trapped, uh, and it's so hard to get out of this. That's what I'm worried about. Like, how do you really get out of it? If the numbers go up now, you're not going to get out of it. Like, if case numbers per day are going up, no one will say, hey, at least our hospitals have capacity. Let's reopen everything. People say, oh, my God, the cases are up every day. And let's assume there's no backlog a month from now. They've actually tested people in a consistent way. If the case numbers are going up, if community transmission is going up, we have to keep everything closed. And that's why I'm saying it's going to be three months or four months to get out of this. Painting ourselves into a corner. Yeah, you write in the letter along with your co-signatories, increasing caseloads are not necessarily translating into unmanageable levels of hospitalizations and ICU admissions. Uh, so, therefore, not really reason to be concerned unless those numbers got away from us. There's some suggestion yep. now that uh, hospitalizations are creeping up, and whereas the the younger demo under 40 was seeing about 60% of the cases, they say, again, there's creep back into the older demos. Any cause for alarm yep. there? Creep. So, so creep is the operative word, creeping up. It's not surging. It's not Bergamo, Italy. It's not a, it's not a disaster movie. We handle creeping up surges all the time with flu years. It doesn't even make the news. I wouldn't be on to talk to you about it or flu. I mean, also, we've got another example. Look at Spain. Spain is a few weeks ahead of us. Same profile in Spain. Lots of disease per day in young demographics. And there is not an overload of the healthcare system. A bit, a slight increase from the summer. It's not the summer. There's a seasonality to coronaviruses. 
And the same patterns followed in France, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, England. It can't be that every one of these countries has a young age group that's screwing up. Some of this is a natural consequence of weather, of people being together. Element and elementary schools are back, but that's not where the transmission happens. But perhaps secondary schools and universities and colleges and younger populations are mingling together just through the natural course of going to work, whatever. And so you're going to see some transmission. We can't have zero disease. If we're aiming for zero, it's not like ending HIV or ending hep C. This is a different virus. It's a respiratory virus. If I said we're going to have a year with no flu, let's get flu-less. It's, it's, it's a quixotic, it's, it's an ambitious, lovely goal, but we're never going to get there. It's a romantic goal. And we have to start accepting that we're mitigating rather than trying to eliminate this virus. And let's be honest and have adult discussions about what are the endpoints we're watching for. It's turning into an eliminationist philosophy without really saying it. Or it's becoming a, we can have a little bit, but only a teeny-weeny bit. And that's how we're locked into this trap. And that's what I'm worried about. Because there are negative other effects when we go into this kind of lockdown minus lockdown plus mode. I'm calling it stage two plus rather than stage two, but whatever. It's still yeah. a change within... within uh, and and the, here's another thing that's going to happen. The peer pressure. A couple of other regions decide, oh boy, they did that in, uh, in Peel. I think Halton, where, you know, where I work, will do that. Oh, maybe Hamilton, we should do that. We're an urban center. It's going up in university populations. And before you know it, a lot of this province is going to end up in the same boat. So the yeah, peer you, pressure. You do say uh, the lockdowns obviously are counterproductive, but more to the point, and finally I've got to ask, because you were just uh, sort of referencing that hard data now exists showing the significant negative health effects shutting down society has caused. That hard data, uh, it seems like everything is focused on cases, number of cases, and those numbers alone yeah. are, are informing us. But the other hard data that you're citing, in, a, in brief, uh, what are those? And there is hard data, you're saying, empirical evidence to support that uh, these are the consequences uh, we ought to weigh in the equation? Yes, yeah, more than empirical. Hard data on TB not being managed properly, on increases in overdose deaths, on impacts of delayed care, delayed cancer diagnoses. Now, at least this time around, this is stage two plus, we're not shutting down the healthcare system, which is why the healthcare system strained, by the way. All right, I reinforce that point. But we're also not closing schools, which is a really bad decision last time because of all the negative impacts of that. All right, especially for people from lower socioeconomic means, it's even more harmful when you close schools because the parents can't work and poverty is bad for health. But even doing what we're doing has negative impacts on a lot of people. Let's not underestimate that. If you close fitness gyms and people can't work out, that causes obesity. This doesn't get counted on the world meter for COVID-19. Obesity leads to heart disease and diabetes. Those are big pandemics that we always talk about when we're not talking about COVID. Very fascinating. Great insights. I really appreciate your time uh, as a, uh, a counterbalance to what we heard from the Premier and uh, the Mayor earlier today. Just uh, puts us into some kind of context. Dr. Neil Rao, infectious diseases physician and medical microbiologist, as well as assistant prof in the Department of Medicine at the U of T. Uh, very much appreciated. Thanks for your time. Have a great Thanksgiving weekend. You too. Thanks. That's the Oakley Show podcast for Friday, October 9th, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify.
Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 